Thank you for joining us again. This is the Grim and Bloody Podcast. Uh, joining me as usual is Kevin Nicholson, horror news net writer. I have Joe Flynn with me, Create TV Award winner. Congratulations, Joe. Thank you. Amazing award. And tonight we have Sam Mason, writer and director of Normal Terror that's coming out this year. Thanks for joining us, man. Glad to have you with us. Welcome, hey, Sam. My pleasure. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I suppose I'll throw in the first question, if I may, uh, if I may, guys, because I'm I'm fascinated by Sam's kind of start in the business. And I know we've talked kind of before about uh, about this, but I want you to uh, kind of go into it again, uh, Sam. Your dad, I understand, played a huge part in your becoming involved with uh, uh, with working in front of the camera as well as behind it. Can you uh, talk about that for a little bit? Um, well, he kind of did and kind of didn't. Um, my dad was uh, one of the first uh, precision drivers in Hollywood. Um, he did, uh, back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, he uh, ran an off-road team called A&D VW uh, by his business, A&D VW Supply, um, and his race team was Headhunter Racing. Um, and so he did a lot of the old shows. Uh, he started by building the cars uh, for a lot of the different shows. Uh, he built uh, the Coyote for Hardcastle McCormick. Uh, he built the first six Herbie the Love Bugs and, you know, stuff like that. And so he was uh, asked to come on a lot of the shows to do stunts that nobody could get, you know, with it, you know, without spending a shit ton of money because they didn't have digital back then. It was all film, and every second of film is a shit ton of money. So, um, you know, he was a the guy they would call in if they couldn't get the stunt they wanted done right, um, and you know, and he would nail it within you know one or two takes. So, um, you know, he did uh, the Fall Guy A Team. Um, Hardcastle, McCormick, uh, Herbie the Love Bug, and stuff like that. So, after I went through a few of my trials and tribulations, and uh, you know, and dealing with life and, and all that bullshit, um, I kind of uh, you know jumped in with both feet. Um, you know, back in uh, 2006, and uh, I I scored six roles that year. Um, you know, my biggest role being uh, co-starring in 4-1 Liberation Front by uh, director Bill Rice, who was the director of Leprechaun 2. Um, and it's kind of a, a mockumentary. Um, I think, Kevin, I think you've done some uh, research on that a little bit. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, it just unfortunately wasn't enough to, to support my family. So I, uh, you know, got out of the business for a while and uh, started working on my own stuff. Um, you know, started working on my own writing from the, you know, what Bill had, the advice Bill had given me. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, you know, two years ago that uh, I hooked up with uh, one of my best friends, uh, Jeremy Miller. Um, and I pitched him a couple of the ideas that I had for, you know, for original content, original films. And uh, he loved them. And, you know, so it just kind of snowballed from there. Very nice. So, Sam, what is it like directing compared to being in front of the camera? Um, you know, I, I actually really enjoy directing. I, I think I have somewhat of a unique vision. Um, for those of you guys that have seen my trailer, uh, the first edition trailer that we put out for Normal Terror, 
Um, I didn't want it to tell a story. I just wanted it to be kind of a shock and awe and make people very uncomfortable, which is why I used a lot of the jump cuts that I did. Um, but I think my, my vision and my angles that I use, my lighting that I use, and, and you know, the, the story that I have, um, I think it really sets me apart from, you know, from a lot of uh, other directors, you know, using, you know, standard looks and standard uh, angles, um, you know, to, to tell a story. You know, in a way, it's, uh, it's an omnipotent, on, omnipotent view uh, where, you know, it's an all-knowing viewpoint, but at the same time, the story is from the serial killer's point of view, um, you know, so it kind of goes both ways in that aspect without actually being a point of view uh, film. I personally like that. He's like, excuse me, I, I can't see uh, which way you're coming from. Oh, never mind. That's just me. <laughs> the dark horror humor there where it's hey, like, you know, you just go like, as a point of view, you know, it's like, Oh, whose point of view are we looking at? The victims, the killers, uh, the camera guy? Hey, you know, it's me over here in the far corner. If I may, if I may, Sam, is it uh, is it easy to? Uh, I've heard different things and read different things from different people who have taken on the dual roles of directing and acting in a uh, uh, in a project. Is it easier or is it difficult for you to direct yourself? Um, believe it or not, it's actually been easier for me. Uh, one of the things that's different about Normal Terror is that 98% of it is improv. And I do that for a very particular reason in this film. And I've gotten a lot of shit about this from, you know, from other filmmakers. Oh, well, you can't make a film with no script. Well, yeah, you can if you have the story developed. Um, and so because I'm acting and directing in it, um, I can dialogue um, you know, the direction I want it to go, and I'm getting natural um, reactions from, from my actors because it's the first time they're experiencing it. So it's very organic in its feel, and, and I think it really brings out my, my actor's ability um, you know, to really give a, a, a great performance in, in the scenes that, you know, that, that we have, you know, especially with the brutality of them. Yeah, I was just looking at, um, I remember we had uh, talked before about your uh, 4-1 Liberation Front, uh -huh. and if you could talk a little bit about uh, the impact that Bill Rice had on you as a uh, well, both as an actor and as a writer, and as uh, in a way as the director you've now become, um, talk a little bit about his impact on you. Um, Bill Rice was was extremely important, and you know, and I credit him to to me becoming a filmmaker. Um, he uh, he spent a lot of time with me. Um, I did uh, I did that's when I first started doing props for film. Um, I made a few of the props for the film. 
Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I did lighting, I did sound, I did, you know, he, he gave me an opportunity to really explore behind the scenes of, you know, what it takes to, to become a, a you know, a, a filmmaker. Um, you know, and he really let me, um, you know, reach out and do everything I could, you know, not just because it was low budget and we, and he needed the help. Um, but I think he, he truly, you know, saw something different in me. Um, so he took a little extra time with me. Um, and and really explain things. Uh, we had a lot of really long, you know, really good long conversations about filmmaking and writing. And you know, one of the things that he said that stuck with me most is that if you have a story, you know, it shouldn't take you, you know, years and years to write a story if you know you spend the time developing and brainstorming on it in the beginning. Um, you know, if you if you develop the story before you ever put pen to paper, um, it should, you know, write itself. You know, and one of the things that one of the techniques I use is I create the beginning, I create the end, and then I come back and I create the middle, middle, and then I fill in acts, you know, two and four um, in between. You know, so that way it it kind of fills in itself once I have a direction for where the story is going. That seems to be a little bit of a, uh, of a um, unusual format compared to those who uh, uh, those directors uh, who have uh, gone more straightforward storyboarding, uh, where they'll do you know either you know straight act one, act two, act three, act four in sequence. Um, you're talking about doing uh, you know doing. Act one, and then Act four, and then going back and filling in, uh, you know, filling in the middle. If I'm understanding uh, correctly, um, that was, is that something that you're that just seems comfortable for you, or? Um... Well, I mean, for for me, when I'm developing my stories, I'd like to know where my stories are going to end up. Um, and so I give my cup myself a couple of uh, a couple of endings that are possibles, and then as I go back and start filling in, um, you know, my dialogue and my themes and how I'm going to get to where I want to achieve, um, then you know, the, it kind of takes it a life of its own, and it goes, you know, the direction that that I think it should go. Um, so while I, I definitely have a, a direction I want it to go, um, it, it does kind of take a life of its own, you know, to a certain degree, but it still gets to a point where I want it at the end that's, you know, still that, that ultimate mindfuck, I guess you could say. Let me ask you, did, did you have, who were your influences uh, as far as... Uh, Actors, directors. I mean, I, I, I see, um, I, I see what I think are certain influences in your, uh, uh, in your work. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to know, like, if you had any, anyone in particular, or any beings in particular that influenced you as you were watching film, getting to know, you know, film the '80s, the '90s, today. You know, for for me, there there's certain films that I absolutely love for different reasons. Um, you know, I've I've always had an issue with watching films and not necessarily always getting caught up in the story, but breaking it down into how they shot it and how they, you know, did the lighting and how they did the angle and you know and stuff like that. So, um, 
you know, I, I really took a lot of that into, into consideration when I started doing normal terror. Um, you know, uh, full metal jackets, one of my favorite movies. Um, Schindler's list is, is another one of my favorites. Uh, you know, and so I, I kind of, you know, took, you know, some Scorsese stuff, some Tarantino stuff, um, you know, and I, I kind of took and made my own spin with how I how I thought that they pulled their scenes together and how they did it. Um, but I also, you know, I, th I think I've done a little bit of my own because a lot of my scenes are, are you know, anywhere up to, uh, you know, five to nine minutes, you know, of, of nonstop. Um so I, I think, you know, it gives us a lot of room to, to cut back and forth. But at the same time, it, it also, um, you know, kind of kind of runs its own little life, its own little story, you know. And sometimes you get those moments where you're on set and, you know, everybody's feeling the vibe, everybody's feeling the, the moment, and you're caught in that situation and it just rolls and everything that comes out of your mouth in that moment is, is just absolutely brilliant. So... You know, once I once I go to edit, um, I think we're going to see some some amazing things that are you know that are probably going to be you know long, um, and I'm not quite sure how my editor is going to put that together yet. You know, because I do have some scenes that are you know five to seven minutes long, um, you know, in the dialogue um, that we're going to try and pull back and forth to you know to give that right shot. But you know, it's it's that you know that that oneer that just makes uh, you know that makes the scene. Well, it's interesting that you uh, that, that you mentioned Kubrick and Spielberg, and you're talking about in your film sequences that are that are five to seven minutes long, and you're in being intrigued about what the uh, what it will look like in the edit after the editing is done. Um, you're talking about two of the filmmakers, perhaps in 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 history, uh, who didn't have a who let the scene play out. They didn't have a problem at times with extended sequences, as long as the as long as it was uh, what you know what was the action being played out was interesting, as long as uh, you know it was still captivating the audience. So I see an interesting connection between uh, you know how you're doing things and how Kubrick did and how Spielberg uh, you know did. Let the scene play out. If it's uh, you know, if it's intriguing, let the camera, you know, keep rolling. I think that there is sometimes a tendency in this day and age by less experienced filmmakers to cut, 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 make things hyperkinetic and short because they don't trust the material, and two, they think the audience. Is uh, you know has the attention span of a beagle, uh, or, or, or something. I mean, I appreciate that you're going for the uh, the quality of this uh, of the scene, so to uh, so to speak, and you're going for you're expecting in an integrity and uh, in, in an intellect from the audience. Well, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, the, the research that I've done on serial killers um, for this being my first film um, as a writer-director um, is that it's serial killers are very methodical. They're very intelligent. They're very personable. They're very charismatic. They're, they're the person you would least expect to be a serial killer. 
Um, and so thinking about it from that perspective um, really gives me an opportunity to kind of, you know, think about the intelligence that has to go into creating a film from a serial killer's point of view. You know, um, with it, you know, not having any cops or any investigations or any backstory on the victims or, you know, any follow-up. Nobody's looking for them. Um, you know, it's really about this guy and his kid and, you know, and struggling through the, the throes of teenage parenthood um, as a single parent, which is something that a lot of people can relate to nowadays, especially. Um, and at the same time, you know, you also have this horrific monster inside of him. So, you know, he's a protagonist and the antagonist in this film. You know, so he's really battling himself and the moralities of the things that he's doing. And I think, you know, looking at it from that perspective, you really have an opportunity to see the intelligence that goes into it. And if you're really going to understand this film from beginning to end, you know, you, you're going to have to look at it from an intelligent standpoint. It's not just a, a visual, um, you know, Slasher, right? You know, each one of the each one of the abductions is different, and each one of the murders is different. Each one a little more brutal than the last. So, um, I, I think that's really gonna gonna play a difference in, in how this film is viewed as to just being uh, you know today's stereotypical slasher film, you know, or jump scare or anything like that. It, it's completely different. You know, we're, we're calling it a new style gore film because there's a lot of psychological aspects in it. What was your inspiration for Normal Terror? It actually started back when I was getting high as a teenager with some of my friends. Um, Perfect starting point. Would, <laughs> right? Um, but we would uh, we would sit out and we would you know get high and, and have all these philosophical you know discussions about if somebody was to do this to your family how would you respond what would be the most brutal way to kill somebody that had done something to harm you in some way or someone you cared about and so we started elaborating on these stories and you know one of the things we came up with is you know taking off you know killing them by using a belt sander and taking off just the top layer of their skin. You know, and letting their, their nerves and their body really feel and accept that pain and, you know, to, to what they had done to you and, and making your pain real. So, you know, as I struggled with my own demons and, you know, my alcoholism and my addictions and, and doing all of those things and, you know, dealing with my depression and my anxieties over the years, you know, I'm a, I'm a five-time survivor, uh, you know, suicide attempt survivor. Um, wow. And so a lot of people don't understand the pain that you have inside. So, you know, thinking about how to make that pain real, you know, with my mind being a little bit dark and twisted, obviously, um, it really gave me an opportunity to explore, um, you know, torture in a, in a significant way um, without having to go to jail for it. Sammy Mason is your son, correct? Yeah. Say again? Sammy Mason? That's correct. Yes, that is actually my son. What, what, what's your thinking behind, um, I mean, this movie, it, it is brutal. Um, it's going to be, you know, maybe a little bit sadistic and definitely it's filled with gore. Um, but what's your thought process on, uh, like, introducing subject matter like this to someone like that? Did you have to kind of prepare them for it? You know, is there things you're going to be seeing? And, um, you know, this is, you know, not, this is a work of fiction. Did you kind of have to prepare them for uh, the kind of experiences that he'd see on set? You know, honestly, I really didn't. Um, he actually helped me come up with a couple of the murder scenes. <laughs> wow. Um, 
You know, my 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 kid is uh, is highly intelligent. He is um, he thinks outside the outside the box. He's uh, very philosophical in nature. Um, you know, he thinks about you know space and time continuums, and he comes up with his own theories of you know life and relativity. And you know, really reminds me of you know the medieval ages. You know, when you would hear about people like you know Shakespeare and Socrates and Plato and all these guys who you know who thought you know, completely different than everybody else, but he doesn't, you know, look at it from a personal standpoint is the, you know, the, the realism in it. You know, yes, these horrific things happen, but given the opportunity, you know, for, for somebody to, everybody has their breaking point. So if somebody was to do something to you, um, you know, everybody has that point where they're like, you know, their first reaction is immediate anger and what you can do to harm that person. So that's kind of the, the perspective I'm looking at it from and, you know, bringing him in and, and talking to him about it and discussing it with him, um, you know, was actually really easy to do. And, you know, no, I don't worry about my son being an actual serial killer. Um, you know, he has too much, you know, basis for for life and you know he's, he's a very gentle soul um you know but at the same time you know if we're honest with ourselves we also have that darkness inside of us um you know but we also know the difference between fantasy and reality so All as long right. as we have that conscious um you know thought of you know well this is reality and you know this is fantasy then you know i, I think it's you know it's okay to let people explore that Provided they understand the difference. Right. You know, it's like you go and, like, you take your son to set, and there's, like, a fake bloody arm of your victim hanging someplace, and, like, oh, yeah, that's not real. That's, you know, just make-believe. Just like with any kid who, you know... Or any parent should let their kids watch some kind of horror film and where you explain to them, hey, this is not reality. You know, if the kid gets scared, hey, great. But you tell no boogeyman's going to come and get you in the middle of the night, you know. Well, and part of it, too, is that, you know, my son see me grow in my special effects and, and how I put this stuff together and how I do, you know, how I make my blood, how I make my prosthetics. Um, and he's helped with some of those. So the fact that he's been able to see how I put the stuff together and how it comes together in the raw materials and, you know, looking at it from a scientific standpoint, um, you know, he, he has a better grasp and understanding, you know, that this is real, this isn't real. Um, you know, and, and he's had a bit of, a bit of a difficult life as well. So, you know, he has seen some, some horrible things happen in his life. Um, you know, with, you know, including his, his mother getting uh, beaten by his daughter's, you know, boyfriend, um, to the Ooh. point where he almost killed her. So, um, you know, he, he has seen some really horrific things in, in his early you know, ages of life. So for him to, to have that reality grasp that, you know, horrific things happen in the world, you know, and, and experiencing those traumatic things and knowing that what we're doing, you know, isn't real, but meant to give off the, you know, the perception of, of reality is, you know, I think is, is somewhat therapeutic as well. The, um, you mentioned about the uh, the special effects, the pra the practical effects that you uh, that you're into, and I think that is what draws me 
to you uh, more than anything else the work that you're doing for your sacrificial pawn productions and your your reliance on practical effects versus CGI um, talk about your work uh, you know doing that it seems to me that you uh, that you really have a preference for that over the uh, uh, over the the current rage to, uh, tendency towards uh, computer graphics I if I'm gonna be absolutely honest I can't stand computer generated graphics I can't stand the CGI I think it really takes away from the actors ability to act and to perform you know whereas you know my actors are looking at you know something physical something truly scary but if you look at things like uh, Will Smith did that movie not too long ago um, what is it uh, I am um, like I am the remake and if you watch the the how it's made of those um, of those movies they're looking at tennis balls and reacting to you know to falsities you know they're having to put on a face that that is completely impractical in my opinion um, sure. you know and yes CGI has come a long way from what it once was but I don't think you're actors can truly perform if they're not looking at fear in the face you know so you know I got into doing my special effects because I had to keep my budget down um, and you know one of my best friends is uh, was a ballistics gel expert um, so I'm very ingenuitive I've always worked with my hands I've always created and tried to push myself to doing things that you know just to see if I could um, so when him and I got together and we brought on my makeup artist uh, Marisol Almeida, um, the three of us came together and you know and I really started exploring my talents and um, pushing myself to, to do things to create things that you know that, that are hyper realistic and would you know would pass the, the true test of, of being horrific on camera. Um, you know, so that's, you know, that's kind of how I, I look at things. Uh, you know, again, I, I prefer practical effects. I grew up with practical effects. Um, you know, so I, I think that's really, you know, in, in my experience, it's been that's the best way to pull the, the, the beauty of, of your, your characters to life um, is by giving them a natural sequence to, uh, to, to follow. So that being said, my, my thinking tends to be that you were actually influenced in a way, and you probably didn't realize it, from Tom Savini, Rob Bateen, Stan Winston, uh, all of the, uh, Rick Baker, all the uh, proprietors of uh, practical effects, probably more so than you thought. Yeah, I really didn't uh, didn't think about it in the beginning when I first started putting it together, um, you know. But yeah, there there's definitely a lot of influences in that because I mean, you just mentioned you know four of the biggest icons in in horror and sci-fi you know history, sure. um, you know, and in creating things that that nobody had done before. Um, you know, so I mean, now that basically everything has been done from Muppets and puppets and animatronics to you know to to practical you know everything in the practical effects you know genre um, you know I, I think that it's really important now to to you know 
show that you know that they were the ones who created those stepping stones for us coming back now you know for them to have the visual effects and yeah they can they can do a whole lot of awesome things with the visual effects but i don't think it really plays as real as they like you to believe it does most uh, most definitely i believe uh, uh cj does have its place um i mean i agree on almost all of your points regarding um how it, it gets the most out of actors when they have something tangible in front of you but when you start straying into like the sci-fi horror um with the implementation of cgi you can just put in more than you can achieve in real life because maybe it's not available you know um now that being said, you know I grew up on aliens. I saw aliens when I was six years old in the theaters. That scared the living right. crap out of me. <laughs> but that movie did right. have some uh, some CGI that I think you know amplified the fact that you know there's just certain things that we can't do on set that can only be done you know on a computer. Um, so I'm a fan of all uh, forms of horror, um, you know, from video games, literary um, design, uh, space. I especially like the space horror, like Alien. Um, that stuff it was like a haunted house on a spaceship um, mm-hmm. so I, I think it does have its its place um, but I definitely like seeing um, filmmakers such as yourself really say you know what we're gonna do this practical effects way we're gonna make sure that you know it stays true to my vision um, I can definitely respect that I think in the end product it really shows it does really well I you know I, I agree with you to a certain degree um, you know Things like the Matrix, you know, a lot of the stuff that they did in the Matrix, you know, is obviously CGI. Um, but you know, look at what they did with with Star Wars. Look at what they did with Hellraiser, you know, and yeah. and things like that back in the day. You know, where yeah. they had animatronics and puppeteers. I mean, look at American Werewolf in London, and you know, and those things yeah. where they had the you know the silicone and the you know the pneumatics. Um, you know, animatronics that, that created the, the things. You yeah. know, I don't necessarily think that you can't do it. Um, you know, with the with the CGI, I, I think it can be done physically, um, but it's definitely a lot more expensive. You know, and that goes into the price of materials and the experience and the knowledge and the talent. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, when you're looking at VFX, um, you know, you're also pushing you know twenty thousand dollars a minute. You know, so, you know, you're creating, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 frames a second, you know, to create that visual effect, you know, and each one of those is, is extremely, you know, time consuming and, you know, and whatnot. So, I mean, it's really a toss up in what you believe is going to be, um, you know, the, the best for, for your particular production. And, you know, and, and, I mean, I've seen a lot of movies that, you know, they spend, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars on that they just waste. Um, you know, where, you know, granted, I would love to have those millions of dollars to you know, roll around and, you know, buy myself a Bentley or, you know. Um, I'll take just a million. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can give me the singular version. I mean, but. You know, they, they, I see them blow a whole lot of money, and then they, and then they throw the shit away. Um, you know, I've worked as a set designer, um, and we made, uh, we made a set for uh, for VidCon this year uh, for YouTube. Um, yes. and it was a hundred, it was a hundred and twenty thousand dollars to make this set, and they literally used it for forty eight hours, and then we tore it down, 
and threw it away. That's insane. You know, I look at it this way. If you make something, and, hey, you know, it looks great and everything like that, you can always, someone could, you know, for whatever, you know, film or project that maybe a student is making a documentary or a film or whatever, maybe they could use that, you know, design to film with, you know. Instead of just throwing it away. Here's a really cool thing about that particular set is that my company let me take it home. I live on two and a half acres out in Agua Dulce, and you know, instead of spending the money to run the dump and you know, trashing you know, you know, three, four, five, six thousand pounds at the dump, you know, at one hundred and twenty-five dollars, you know, a thousand, you know, they they let me take it home. So you know, I do actually have those sets at my house, you know, that I can use for you know for props and you know and buildings and stuff like that, you know, later on in in you know in in years to come. So you know, it's great that you know that I was able to get that use out of them. But a lot of stuff that we build. You know, once they're done with it, they they toss it, and it's you know to to me that's that's unfathomable because the fact is, you know, you're you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to build these sets that you're literally going to throw away. I, I can't fathom it. Neither can I. Uh, <laughs> by the way, Sam, uh, I'd like to know a little more about the cast of your film, Normal Terror. Okay. Um, well, we actually have. Quite a big cast. <laughs> um, yes, and unfortunately, we we are in uh, talks with a couple of people I can't mention yet. Um, that's fine. No spoilers. Uh, yeah, anything that's under wraps, you can keep it under wraps. Don't worry. Yeah, don't while, get away. While we're, still in, while we're still in production until we actually sign the contracts and make the deals with the people, um, I kind of have to keep that on the deal. But. Yeah, so we have, uh, let's see, each, we have eight murders in the film. Um, I'm you know, looking at the was, victims. I'm looking at the uh, your movie credits right okay. now. Um, IMDb, yep. Yes. And I just was looking at your poor uh, victims, which I will not give away any of the deaths, you know, and stuff like that. Wait for people to you see the know, film. Honestly, I, I don't mind talking about it because even if I was to sit here and explain to you each one of the deaths, you know, because I used a lot of dark humor when I was writing this, and each murder scene does have um, a little bit of humor in the name to the scene. Um, you know, my drowning victim is called a little bubbly. Um, yes. You know that kind of thing. You know where there there is a little bit of, of humor to it. You know the uh, the belt sander that we were talking about earlier. Um, that murder scene is called sanding delicately. Um, you know, so I, I have a little bit of uh, you know dark humor that I added into this. Um, but I think that uh, you know the scenes that we've shot so far, um, we've shot three of the murders. Um, so we've shot a little bubbly with a rune lee. We have shot um, sanding delicately, but we do have to reshoot that because I was using an actor that was SAG, um, and unfortunately I can't turn this into a SAG film at this point in time, so we're no longer able to use that actor, so he was recast. Um, And then we also have um, the acid bath victim, Miss Kelly Kickham. 
um, who did a phenomenal job, and you know we were really happy with how everything came out. Um, you know, but unfortunately, uh, you know things happen, and you know you got to move forward and pick up. So, you know, but uh, yeah, I think the the cast that we currently have right now is uh, phenomenal. Um, each one of them was hand selected. Uh, the autopsy scene with uh, Julianne Prescott. Um, yes. You know, is going to be uh, is going to be you know definitely a very brutal intense scene. Um, you know, I think she's a phenomenal actress. I, you know, um, you know, honestly, we uh, we had a lot of difficulty in casting this as a non-union because there is nudity in that scene. Obviously, you can't perform an autopsy on somebody or a dissection of somebody, you know, if they have their top on. So, um, you know, uh, I actually had a lot of uh, a lot of people turn me down for that role. Um, which is, you know, nuts to me, you know, especially in horror nowadays. Um, but that's like what's know, normally uh, on AMC. I don't get it. <laughs> right, and good luck, Julie. Hey, you know, I wish you all the best with that scene. When you were <laughs> writing um, the the uh, the script, um, did you ever think for a minute um, this would be an excellent screenplay that I can sell to an indie studio, or was it always from the beginning? This is something that I want to be involved in from start to finish. I want to be the serial killer. Like this was your passion project. Um. This, yeah. This. This is my baby. Um. You know. I. Okay. So, like I had said before, I ninety-eight percent of this is improv. Um. So there is. You know. There is no technical script to it. What I wrote in this film was a shot list. Um, and so I have every scene and every shot of the film broken down in the way I envisioned it. Um, you know, literally from cut to cut to cut to cut. Um, and so like in the autopsy scene itself, there's 107 individual shots for that seven minute scene or eight minute scene. Um, you know, so, you know, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, you know, who, who better to play the, the, the killer that I developed in my head um, you know, based partially on, on my, mine and my son's life, because I am a single father. Um, you know, I, I, I do have full custody of my son. I've had him for the last four years. So, um, you know, who better to play that character than, you know, than the person who it's based off of, you know, I'd be like me trying to, you know, write a story that, I, I wrote for a particular actor, you know, and their mannerisms, and, you know, I can't get that actor, so I have to recast it kind of thing. So, um, you know, it was definitely a passion project, and I, uh, you know, I, I couldn't see, you know, anybody else playing the role of the serial killer or the son in this, but, you know, me and, and my son. Um, you know, and again, a lot of that plays off the organicness that I want to envision on camera, um, and being able to, uh, to see that natural reaction and chemistry that my son and I have, um, you know, off camera. Well, uh, just looking at your, uh, cast credits, just, just to let you know for future reference, um, I could have easily played a screwed and nailed victim, uh, and, you know, cause I have a history of that. <laughs> so uh, I can really draw on that experience. Just if you need somebody in the uh, in the future, yeah, uh, for that. <laughs> I had uh, actually talked to you um, at the Hollywood shows where we met um, yeah, last yeah. year, and yeah. um, I think it was one of my first Hollywood shows. Um, sure. But uh, I, 
and I had originally talked to you because the next film I have coming up um, that I'm going to be doing, uh, you know, my film that I'm writing and directing um, is we just released the title of that, which is uh, Wicked Train, the Casey Jones Saga. Um, sure. And I'm going to have 15 original um, characters in that film, and I would absolutely love you to play one of those characters. I'd love to. Go I'd for love it, to. Count me in. Now the the question I have, um, just following up on what Anthony was 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 talking about, I've heard from so many uh, filmmakers who do a lot of their uh, who direct a lot of their films for uh, for online, uh, you know, digital viewing. They have such difficulty at times in obtaining um, funding of late. Uh, and retaining some sort of um, creative vision, uh, you know. Usually, if you if you get a lot of funding from an outside source, uh, you have to hand over a lot of creative a creative vision. What were you? I saw that your budget is one point five million. Um, is that mostly your own uh, funding or? Were you able to get some outside uh, outside sources coming in financially, and um, was were you able to you you obviously were able to uh, uh, to to uh, maintain your creative vision? How did that all play out? Um, okay, I don't know. I haven't been very successful with crowdfunding campaigns. Um, you know, but what I am good at is I am good at selling myself and, you know, and my vision on the product. Um, and so what I've been able to do is I primarily use, uh, independent investors. Um, and, you know, the way I sell it to them is, you know, you get a percentage for, you know, uh, return on investment, um, you know, based on, you know, giving me the creative freedom to create my vision. Um, you know, if you believe in the project and you want to invest and make some money, fantastic. I have no problem with that. But, you know, at the same time, I also don't want you to come in and take away my creative freedom because that's what you buy into in the beginning. Um, so, you know, I use private investors. Um, and I will say at this point in time, I primarily use my own money. Um, I have had a couple of investors and I have another investment coming in that's going to push us through the end of principal photography um, at the, the first part of uh, March. Um, but honestly, we, we don't we haven't reached that 1.5 million goal yet. Um, we are still looking for investors. Um, but that, you know, I don't want people to think that, um, th th that's currently an estimate on what we're going to need to finish up. Um, and we may be able to get it done for a lot cheaper than that, but I also don't want any, any, um, anything hidden from, from my, you know, my, uh, my fans or the public or anybody else because in reality you know yes uh, films like the Blair Witch only spent sixty thousand dollars production value however that didn't include their marketing campaign their P&A and you know and all the stuff that happened on the business side of the film itself so if you add in all those totals um, you know the P&A deal and the marketing and you know and the campaign that they put out which was absolutely brilliant at the time that they did it um, yes. which is why it did as well as it did 
um, you know, if you put all those figures together, that sixty thousand dollars that they have listed for production value, or you know, for the making of the film, you know, jumps a whole hell of a lot higher. And I don't want to hide that from, you know, from from anybody as to how much actually went into making the product. That is fantastic, and that's that's you know great to know, because there are some, and I I don't know any filmmakers, like but, you know, the filmmakers you know, who do want to make a legitimate film for the fans, for the people to go and see. They're not going to try to say, oh, yeah, can you uh, give me some money? And then never, you know, it never sees the light of day, you know. Well, and, and that's another thing, too, you know, is you have so much content coming out nowadays on, you know, video on demand, um, you know, that, you know, you have thousands of films that, you know, that get bought and sit on a shelf. True. You know, so, yeah, the filmmaker makes their money back for what they put into the film, but they don't make a living past that. You know, I mean, I'd like to believe that, you know, not just the, the creativity and what I'm putting into this film, you know, and the experiences that I'm building, um, you know, but I'd like to believe that, you know, that it has an opportunity to, you know, to set up a future and a reputation for me as a filmmaker, um, you know, to be able to do much more than, than just this film, you know, and I, I do want to keep the creative freedom for, you know, for my vision, um, you know, and what I think is, you know, is an original content, it's an original story, and, you know, I, I think if, you know, I have a unique vision for how it could come together or how it should come together, you know, I'd like to be able to, you know, to, to fund them myself, you know, so that that way, you know, I don't have anybody stepping in and saying, oh, well, we need to cast ABC or we need to do this ABC, you know, because that's what they're used to. I don't want to, you know, become a... a you know, stereotypical Hollywood studio, you know, filmmaker that, you know, puts stuff out simply to make money rather than putting out something that's worth putting out. Oh, yeah. Oh, I agree. Sam, if you'll, uh, if you'll give us a rundown on what's coming, what's coming up next for you um, and, you know, talk about some projects that you are really uh, proud of. I know you've been... Uh, Posting quite a bit on on Facebook about Maverick and Grundy, and uh, if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of uh, tell folks where they can uh, where they can uh, you know view some of your uh, your stuff, your information, your Facebook page, your uh, sacrificial pawn site, et cetera, et cetera, where they can get a hold of you if they want to uh, they want to find out more about Sam Mason. Um, okay, so Maverick and Grundy is a story of the Soul Collectors, which is an underground uh, bill collecting, um, you know, uh, business, I guess you would say. Um, back in the day, uh, just after Vietnam, um, they became the largest underground bill collectors um, in the world. Um, and so it's based on, you know, real life circumstances that are, um, you know, kind of, you know, told in a, in a different version of, of what happened and, and how, uh, how that all came together. Um, you know, which is with, uh, Maverick Von Hogg, uh, I'm, I know I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but, um, you know, he's five-time world MMA champion. He's a, uh, you know, a, a significant, you know, member of the bodybuilding community. 
Um, and then you also have guys like Guy Grundy, um, you know, who walks with the Soul Collector um, in its underground lifestyle, and they're kind of telling their story of, you know, what it was like to, you know, to live this lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm producing this this show. I'm uh, I'm doing the special effects. Um, so. Um, I'm really proud of this project. It's, uh, you know, I believe it has an opportunity to go somewhere. Um, so we'll see what happens with that one. Um, and then I was just announced uh, to be in conjunction with uh, Jonathan Moody of Sick Flip Productions. Yay, um, Jonathan. So, yeah, so uh, we are teaming up to do a film called The Sacrificed. Um, and uh, I'm going to be playing the lead. I'm executive producing this film and uh, possibly doing special effects and God knows what else um, at this point in time. And uh, I finally get to play the devil, so I'm super ecstatic about that. Um, my, my beautiful girlfriend, Jenny Holtzman, uh, who was the voice of Peppermint Patty, is getting back into the acting realm, and she will be uh, playing one of my cult members. Um, so I get to finally work with her. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's just going to be a, a whole lot of fun. So I've got a lot of projects lined up. Um, you know, uh, what is it? Um, uh, Winter Haven, the TV series, I was asked to take over and direct that um, by uh, Jack Saint. Um, Jack Hunter, uh, who is known for the paranoia tapes, uh, found footage genre. Um, so I'm, I'm taking that over. That's going to be, uh, starting up sometime this next year. I, I've got a shit ton of projects. Uh, I just worked on, uh, 16 bits with Kevin Caliber Thompson and Aaron Minto. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I, I've been busy as hell. So, um, but you can reach me on Facebook at, uh, the at symbol new style gold films, which is the sacrificial pond productions, uh, uh, page. Um, you can find our merchandise at normal Um, you can find me on Instagram at normal underscore terror underscore the movie or on Twitter at real Sam Mason. Well, I for one cannot wait to see normal terror at the death parade film fest this, uh, September. I think it's going to be freaking awesome, man. Let's have it. A world premiere. Let's do it. <laughs> that is definitely what we're shooting for. Fantastic. And Sam, it's it's been such a delight to chat with you again. Uh, you you are such uh, you are such energy and um, creativity, and I, I think that the world of horror uh, films especially needs that. Such yes. an incredible talent. You know, I, uh, I believe in what I do. You know, it's uh, my dad told me never to half-ass something. If you're going to half-ass it, you might as well not do it. So, you know, I, I put my own in my projects, and, you know, my work ethic is, you know, second to none. Um, and so I, you know, I try to, you know, bring everybody up as much as possible. So, you know, you guys know I'm all about supporting indie film and supporting other artists. Um, one of the things I believe in with all of my heart is that there's plenty of room at the top for all of us. Um, you know, so I would much rather give a hand up than, uh, you know, than, than down others to, to get to the top. So, you know, come on with me. Well, thank you very much for being with us, uh, Sam. Appreciate your time and uh, all the um, patience you had uh, with all of our questions. I almost felt like an interrogation. <laughs> yes, what an interrogation. 
Yeah, we'll go ahead and turn off your I'm okay with that. I'm uh, I'm a U.S. Army vet, so uh, not my first time. <laughs> well, we'll try to turn off the spotlight a little bit now. Here, you know, uh, here we're almost done. No worries, brother. I got all the time in the world for you guys. I appreciate you having me. You're so welcome, Sam. Thank Once you again. very much, Sam. Thank you very much. You Once again, me. Sam Mason, writer, director of the upcoming horror film Normal Terror. It's going to be premiering soon, and Death's Parade Film Fest is salivating at the chance to see this on screen. Well, thank you very much for joining us with the Grim and Bloody Show. Uh, we'll be back soon with more episodes. Have a great night. Bye. Bye thank guys. you. Bye.